You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. And we simply put forward those characteristics of the school and simply said to people, well, look, we're not run by parents committee. Um, We've already chosen the features of the school. Have a look and see if you like them. If you do, you're welcome to join us. If not, well, good luck with one of the other 10,000 schools in Australia. I'm pretty sure all of us have an opinion about school, whether it's about our own experience or that of our kids. We all know it could be better. The thing I've noticed as a parent is that there is not that many options. And the things I value my kids learning probably have to come from me rather than the school I send them to. 40 years ago, my guest for this week co-founded a school in Fitzroy North. Still going strong today, it consistently rates very highly in the external tests and equips kids with the skills they need to thrive in a rapidly evolving world, giving parents a solid alternative to other educational options. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Philip O'Carroll on the subtle disruption of the school experience. Yeah, Philip, hi. Thanks for hi, joining Adam. me and really excited about this conversation, actually. Okay, well, well thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah, you're welcome. The first question I ask is about the place that you've chosen for our conversation. So where are we today? Well, this, um, this rather large old house that we're sitting in was our home, the home of my wife and I and our blended family. Going back uh, 40 years, we um, lived here and we decided to start our own school. And so we kept the upstairs as our private quarters and the downstairs became our little school. Yeah. We simply put one ad in, in the newspaper and um, within two weeks we, we were full of kids. So there was plenty of interest in uh, wow. a new community school in those days. And uh, oh, well, actually I believe there would be plenty of interest now too if someone uh, opened one up, and uh, especially in the inner suburbs. Anyway, so um, it's not our home now, and that's because the school has slowly grown over the years, uh, and this whole house is now used for school activities, and uh, since then we've um, acquired the house next door, so it's doubled the uh, accommodation of the school, yeah. and um, it's now up to 65 pupils, and we're stopping there because we've discovered that if we Whenever we've tried to go bigger than that, it starts turning it into an institution where people don't know everybody. So we've decided that that's the ideal number. And we always have more than enough people wishing to join us. So that's not a problem. Yeah. So the school, we're in Fitzroy North. Yes. Just opposite the old Fitzroy football ground. Is that what it's called? The Brunswick Street Well, These days it's called the Edinburgh Gardens. Okay. But when we started here, the brick fence was still around with the ticket box and everything. Was it really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. So that was 40 years ago, you said? So 1976? Yes, absolutely. We started in that year. Yeah. Yeah. And this, so we're in the room that we're in right now is currently the library, you were saying. Yes. Well, this would have been the... um, the sort of lounge originally, and um, and then there was like the dining room, the kitchen and so on. Yeah. But um, when we started it up as a school, this became the maths room, and uh, the next one became the English room and so on. Yeah. You know? And the kitchen, we discovered, became the nerve centre of the school. 
So when we finally got uh, the house next door, we, we continued the tradition that everything's run from the kitchen and we just built a much bigger kitchen. Yeah. Because it's full of teachers and parents and kids. Why, why did it become the nerve centre? I understand in a house, often the kitchen is the nerve centre. That's where people exactly. hang well, out and have cups of tea. and yeah. Well, it's just like at being at home, yeah. yes. Uh, that's where everyone goes for a cup of tea. And so now it's where everyone goes for everything. Like, you know, a child wants to know where they're supposed to be for the next period. Well, that's where they go. That's where the timetable is. And, you know, uh, teachers, parents and children just mingle in that room yeah. and eat and drink. Yeah. So it's a bit like home in that respect. Maybe I'll come back to talking a little bit about how things run now. The first question I got in my mind is, back in the 70s, you said that, I, yeah, you filled the class, you got up to how many kids straight away? You filled it within a couple of weeks. That's right, yes. Was What was the general feeling about this type of school or alternative types of schools then? Well, you see, that's um, just a few years after the hippie era. In the late 60s, of course, we had the, the counterculture, uh, that's the hippies, and um, I believe that came about because my generation grew up living in fear of the end of the world because of uh, nuclear uh, standoff between the US and the USSR, yeah. a huge uh, you know, compiling of, of nuclear weapons, and we didn't know whether the world was going to end and of course children are very impressionable with messages like that. So I believe that's why the whole hippie phenomenon occurred. We, as young students, we said, well, you know, um, civilization as we know it has brought us to the brink of destruction. Therefore, it's got to be altered somehow. Something's got to change. And we weren't getting any sense out of the oldies as to how it should change. And so we decided to just question everything. So traditional religion was questioned, traditional marriage, traditional politics, the status of women, um, racial discrimination, uh, discrimination against homosexuals. All sorts of things got examined and changed. The, many ideas which we regard as absolutely gospel now uh, got their huge surge during the late 60s. Yeah. And then five years later, the hippies had children ready for school. And so there was a big demand for alternative schools. Uh, because obviously uh, there was a widespread understanding that, um, you know, how a school operates is going to influence what kind of citizens we end up with. Because you spend 13 formative years at school. Yeah. And uh, so at first, we simply put our children into an existing alternative school, but we made a rather distressing discovery, and that is that um, the adult population of the school, that's the parents and the teachers, would discuss every question about the operation of the school and could never reach agreement. You know, there was just endless debate about a whole succession of things. Um, which were never resolved. <clears throat> and we thought, oh dear, it's not going to work. And, um, and we thought, you know, is there any hope for alternative schooling? And, um, and that school that we were in uh, just collapsed from exhaustion, as did another 20 schools in Melbourne, 20 alternative schools. 
um, they weren't um, crushed from, from outside. They, they died from exhaustion because of infighting, because the adult population within the school just couldn't agree on anything. You know, people feel very strongly about how children should be handled and raised and educated, and no one was going to give ground. So we thought, well, we just forget the whole idea, or else we, we boldly made the decision to start our own school, and we'll say, well, to avoid this endless conflict of the adult committee, we'll simply design an alternative school with typical features, you know, we have small classes and lots of outings and camps and um, we'll let the parents come and help and um, so, and we simply put forward those characteristics of the school and simply said to people, well look, we're not run by parents committee, um, we've already chosen the features of the school, have a look and see if you like them, if you do, you're welcome to join us. If not, well, good luck with one of the other 10,000 schools in Australia. <laughs> and so we now firmly believe that that's how parent choice really needs to work. They, there needs to be diversity in schools that are on offer and uh, the parents shop around and decide which one they have the most faith in. Yeah. But it doesn't work just having everybody deciding how to run the school. That just doesn't work. Yeah. On that diversity piece do you think well to give a little bit of context i've got two boys they're six and four so the six-year-old's in grade one at the moment um do you see a lot of diversity in the choices that parents have available to them in melbourne right now sadly there is very little choice because there's very little diversity uh and that's because the system actually tries very hard to discourage people from starting new, different schools. Um, th there's an awful lot of red tape put in the way and people get overwhelmed when they see uh, what's required and they, they abandon the idea. And that's just the existing school industry protecting itself. Mm. Uh, in fact, they've even said to us, um, if you tried to start your school today, we wouldn't let you. Why? Well, just because they, they, they don't like the diversity, uh -huh. you know, because, um, well, in, the way things work in Australia is um, uh, two-thirds of all children go to state schools, one-fifth go to Catholic schools, and the remainder, about one-seventh, are called independent schools or private schools. <coughs> and... Um, Legally speaking, alternative schools are just regarded as private schools. Um, so, the uh, yeah, the mainstream um, school industry is controlled by the education departments, which run the state system, obviously, and they don't want the whole population leaking out of their system into a whole lot of other kinds of schools. So they resist. Uh, people trying to start their own schools, although there are many uh, really super teachers out there who would just love to start their own little primary school, and it would be really good news for lots of children if they could. Yeah. From what I understand, there's only... Well, how many of these schools have remained after there was probably, you know, tens and tens of them in the 70s? How many yes. still exist today? Well, um, 
it, there's, uh, it's a bit hard to give an exact number because there's sort of um, you know, gradations. Like <clears throat> you've got traditional independent schools which have been around for a hundred years, you know, with old-fashioned values and so on. And um, then you've got various um, schools which are um, more, uh, more the whole child. That's what we call it. We can go into that later, what that means. Um, but there's certainly nowhere near as much diversity as parents want. Particularly, um, particularly spread out geographically in a way that we live in Melbourne at the moment. Now, yes. right? Like, I guess if you wanted to go to a school like this, there might be only three or four areas that you could feasibly live in to yes. be close enough to go to them. Yes, yeah. that's right, yeah. yeah. When you... So back, in, back when you founded the school and you said you came up with that list of, you know, these are the things that we... Believe in yes. if you if you're into yeah. it, great, yeah. come and yeah. join us. Yeah. How did you form those things, and what, what were they, and how did you form them? Well, well Faye and I, um, we sat down uh, when we realised that you know we'd either have to just go back to mainstream schooling with our tail between our legs, or invent one ourselves. We naturally asked ourselves, well, what do we actually want from a school anyway? You know, what's important for a school to provide? And we thought, well, I suppose there are, you know, survival skills, um, you know, literacy and numeracy. They are survival skills in the modern world. Life's pretty grim if you haven't got those. Um, and we thought, well, <clears throat> what's, the, um, what's the most important survival skill in the world today? And we both agreed quite quickly that um, the most important thing for a young human to acquire is interpersonal communication skills. If you can communicate with people, you will do well in your personal life and also in your career. So whichever way you look at it, it was a vital skill. And when we looked around at, at schools, we thought nobody's actually taking care of that because it's virtually a universal phenomenon that children spend years at school and their personal expressiveness and ability to relate with other people often seems to just go down rather than up. Yeah. We thought that's really the wrong, that's really wrong priorities because, um, you know, that, that's what a young human needs to, to acquire. I mean, we don't live in caves anymore. Whatever we want, we have to go through other people. And besides, a lot of what a human being wants is interaction with other people. So we put that top of the curriculum. That's why we don't have a discipline policy here. You know, if we're having a, a maths class in this room, yeah. which we certainly did have for 25 years, um, particularly in, in a you know, be school beginners, it, you may find that some kids are climbing up the wall uh, as opposed to doing maths. And instead, of, we don't say, naughty boy, stand in the corner, you've done the wrong thing. No, we, we say, okay, well, this child is not, you know, engaging you know with the rest of us in this um, interaction of learning maths so we simply drop the maths put it to one side and then go to our first priority which is interpersonal communication say well you know um, we don't seem to be doing much maths at the moment because we seem to be climbing walls and um, 
you know, we have a discussion and everyone's terribly interested and the little children have all got opinions about it, which may not be very mature, but that doesn't matter. They just get used to discussing whatever problem comes up, you yeah. see. And before you know it, um, they're all very engaged um, around the table and speaking in a progressively more articulate way about whatever problem it is that has to be solved. Yeah. Before you know it, after that uh, tiny tots year, they work together like a house on fire. And that's why, um, or now I'm jumping the gun a bit, but uh, many years uh, later, uh, when the government brought in external assessment, we were surprised to discover that our school was way up the top. You know, and most years our academic results are in the top 1%. Uh, we thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. And it's not that we're a sweatshop, because we spend less time in class than any other school that I know of. <laughs> we have like over 20 camps a year, and so most kids uh, will go to several camps. And um, we spend a lot of time in the gardens across the road, running around and getting the circulation going again. And we also take the opportunity to go on outings whenever there's in anything interesting to see. Um, and so we end up um, spending less time in class. But the time that we do spend in class is very productive because we're all communicating you know, um, very uh, successfully, very effectively. Yeah. And because they've had those conversations about, you know, what are we doing here and, and why did our parents bring us here and what do we hope to achieve, they feel that it's their project. And we get to, we've had a lot of visiting teachers here over, over the years and um, they just can't believe it when somebody says, uh, okay, it's... Um, it's time for English and we're going to talk about adverbs and the kids all get up and say, oh, adverbs, let's go and, let's go and sort out adverbs. You know, and you think, wow, that's amazing because they just know that it's going to be um, a good experience and, and they, because, um, because we got, make communication the top priority in the school, um, they never doubt for a moment that what we're going to teach them is going to be something worthwhile. Yeah. And because they believe that and they engage in it enthusiastically, we've never had to bring in like the sort of sugar coating of subjects. We, we don't try and disguise, you know, spelling, grammar, handwriting, creative writing by saying, oh, let's talk about kangaroos today. And then hopefully they'll, they'll you know, learn how to spell kangaroo as part of it and they'll draw some kangaroos and so on. No, we, we tend to attack each skill head on. We say, okay, handwriting. Let, let's see if we can make a beautiful H, you know, and we work on that. Or else, um, you know, if it's spelling, we say, okay, now we just move up a couple of classes here. We say now shin, T-I-O-N. We see that an awful lot uh, in books and, uh, and it always says shin. So let's think of all the shin words we can and we write them down and the kids write them down and then, you know, we, um, when we've done that, we, we, we go through and call out some words and they write them down. And from, from there, there on, they come across a shin word and it doesn't bother them at all. Yeah. So that's like a direct attack on spelling or 
handwriting or and then creative writing it's all about the story being interesting and and um, you know something inter- original and personal and you know learning how to respect each other's work to, to really encourage interesting writing so that's what we do we, we directly tackle each skill rather than trying to just hide it under a sort of entertaining theme as it were so, which sounds pretty old-fashioned, really, but um, we're not trying to be old-fashioned. We just find that children are awfully rational people if you, um, if you respect them and, and um, you're you rational with them. You know, if you talk down to them, they'll be silly, whereas if you talk to them as rational beings, they'll be rational beings, and that's what we find them to be. Yeah. I really liked what you said about the effectiveness of the time that you have in the classroom and how it's less than pretty much every other school and you do all these other things outside. You go on, you go to the park and yes. you um, you go on camps and you mm. go to um, events that are happening around Melbourne. That's yes. um, an idea that really resonates with me at the moment about the workplace yes. as well. Um, and I, I think there's a, there's a bit of a tipping point happening I might be wrong, but there's a bit of a tipping point about people being locked to a certain place at a certain time when they're doing their work. And, and you know, just even observing myself and how, how I work through a day and how I can get so much done in two hours sometimes, but so little done in eight hours mm. at other times. And, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know what the parallels there are exactly, but I think there's there's something happening about people being freed up from time and place and understanding that a lot of the work that we, the necessary work we can do can be done in a, a much shorter and compressed period of time and it can free us up to do so many other things if we have a bit more of an open attitude about it. Yeah, well, if we are really engaged, you know, and, and the spirit is up, we, we, can, we can do an amazing lot. And when we, when we look at our um, official results and realise what we can achieve with so little time in class, it leaves us with a rather grim conclusion about what's happening in um, mainstream schooling. You know, an awful lot of that time is basically childminding. Yeah. It's a rather sad thing to observe. But, you know, we, we really are saying there is a better way of, of especially primary schooling. We don't know anything about secondary schooling, but. Primary schooling, we believe, is the critical time because that's when you form attitudes. You know, the attitude to learning. You know, is learning an enjoyable and exciting thing, or, or is it a drudgery thing? And if you form the the, um, the concept that you know it's an exciting thing and an illuminating thing, well, later on in life, secondary, tertiary, and throughout their lives, they will naturally want to learn things. Uh, whereas if you do it wrong, you can put them off learning things, which gives them a stunted life. What, well, can you talk us through, say, a typical, maybe there's no typical day, but what is a typical day at the school? And then I might ask you about, say, a typical year as well, but what's a typical day? Well, we, we do have a timetable, um, not that we strictly follow it, because sometimes an opportunity arises. Like, for example, I remember going back a few years, um, one mother came in and she said, look, it says maths on the timetable there and there's, there's no children anywhere in the place. And I said, oh, yes, well, today we had the opportunity to 
attend the birth of a horse. So we weren't going to pass that up. So we don't promise to do what it says on the timetable. That's only there if we haven't got something better to do. And, you know, she was a bit uneasy about that, which I thought was very illogical because we're already getting top results. So, you know, why would she, you know, um, harass the goose that lays the golden eggs? (laughs) And the only reason we're getting top results is because the children are excited to be here because we do do things like go out and watch that horse being born. You know, if we just locked them into the room day in, day out, that it would be much more, you know, an uphill battle, you know, to get them achieving so much. Yeah. And uh, and like I said, we've had many visitors from teachers and sometimes, you know, they, they wonder, you know, how we, we get such good results. And we say, well, well, first of all, we have no classes on Wednesdays. And they think, oh, boy, you know, that's a big chunk out of the, um, you know, curriculum and then on other days every child has a free period which is unstructured so they work out what they like to do and who they like to do it with and so on and so they learn more about themselves and how to get on with other with other kids um yeah without being supervised um so yeah so um it's not something that um a lot of mainstream schools find easy to imitate because they say, oh dear, you know, there's there's a lot of freedom of movement in, in what you've described. But uh, the fact remains we, we, we treat the children as, as rational beings and they respond as rational beings, you know, they're people. Yeah. You know, everyone's, and, and I think the fact that we keep the, the population down to 65 kids you know, and a bunch of teachers, so say 70 people altogether um, at any given time, um, means that, you know, everyone you see around you is someone you know. So it's all like like an extended family. Mm. You know, you, you feel completely safe and you feel involved and you feel known. You know, everyone is someone. Oh, and also another thing that really helps that is the adult-child ratio. We let parents help us. And of course, if a teacher has an aid, that greatly enhances what you can do in a class because you're never going to get everyone in the class at the same level. Uh, some kids are, are racing ahead and you might have someone to work with them and others are slower. You want someone to work with them. and. I know a lot of schools are going to say, oh dear, that's dangerous, letting parents in. A lot of schools don't let parents into the classroom. And uh, some parents would be, you know, um, a problem uh, because, they, you know, they, um, they don't respect, you know, the role of the teacher or what have you. So we don't just let anyone in. Um, what we do is we have... The school kitchen is always open to the parents. They can come in whenever they like. They can eat or drink anything that's there or read the newspapers or chat with other people there. Um, they can put a Band-Aid on a child's scratch if necessary. Um, and, um, you know, or if it's a nice day, they can sit out in the yard. And, um, but some of, it's not compulsory for parents to come and spend time here, but several of them do. And 
Some parents come so regularly that they become known to the teachers and a teacher might invite a parent to come and help them in the class. And um, so that, that is a huge uh, advantage for that class to have that extra uh, adult helper. And uh, sometimes I've seen with Faye's English class, she's got four people in the room. You know, talk about luxurious adult-child <laughs> ratio. And we don't have to pay them. Yeah. It's natural motivation from parents and grandparents. Yeah. But the principal has to approve of anyone being uh, allowed to do that. And, and the teacher has to choose. If the teacher doesn't want them, they don't have them. They only have who they want. Yeah. And uh, only with the principal's approval. But um, that's only going to happen if the teachers can actually get to know the parents first. And that does happen because the school kitchen is always open house for, for parents. So those who want to spend time here become known to people. And that's how it all works. Yeah. And all through... Melbourne, there are lots of parents and grandparents who would love to help out, but the, the opportunity is not, not available. Yeah. You've talked a lot about the kitchen. Tell us about the different things that happen there. I understand that kids cook their own food. Is that yes, right? Yes, they yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we have a, uh, a guest teacher from another country, you know, like Japan, and the kids are all making sushi rolls and so on. Um, and sometimes you just have uh, one of the parents has come in and is going to... Oh, by the way, the children don't bring their lunch to school. Right. Uh, we get the food mostly from the market and it comes in and there's sort of fresh food available all the time. So the children between classes can grab something to eat or drink. And um, But around lunchtime, uh, there's often a parent... Um, who, who will sort of uh, throw something together, some pasta uh, or um, some, um, what else do they cook up? Or some soup or something like that. So sometimes the, the meal is fancier than other times, but like worst case scenario, there's all sorts of delicious things you can put on sandwiches and, and, and have that for lunch. So the children eat together, you know, like a family. And of course, that's a very bonding thing. We, we consider that a very important part of the school character. Yeah. They don't bring the lunch. They, they eat it together here. Yeah. And the parents just pay something into the lunch kitty every term. Yeah. Mm. Well, just that, that skill of um, learning how to create food for yourself is yeah. such a great survival skill as well. Like you're talking about survival Absolutely. skills. That's one that I guess in a lot of schools isn't really taught. Yeah. Well, actually, talking about survival skills, at the end of the day, the children have to clean up the school. Mm. So after doing that for seven years, they regard cleaning up as just a perfectly ordinary fact of life. Yeah. And when you look at uh, lots of young adults, they can't cook, they can't clean up, and so their life's a bit of a shambles. Um, but all of that's quite unnecessary, really. You just have to... Um, let them do it and, and they will naturally imitate what adults do uh, if you let them mm. and, and they will become better and better at it. Yeah. And so, you know, it's um, like we say, it's the whole child we're working with, not just filling the brain with English and maths. Mm. And if you do attend to the whole child and, and uh, like we say, communication comes first and then those other activities, all those other normal life activities uh, in the mix, 
uh, and then we stir in English and maths as well, um, well, they just feel it's, it's so natural to, to, to do the learning. It's not like, oh, God, now we have to go back to class. It's just another exciting activity for them. You've talked a bit about the whole child as well. What do you mean by that? Well, um, when you take five-year-olds uh, and until right up to 17 or 18-year-olds, um, that's 13 years of their lives in institutions. And uh, when schooling was first invented, it was only for a few years. And in those days, children lived in large families. So there was a lot of opportunity for socialization. And also they didn't have cars in those days. So uh, people got to know their local village. So uh, there's an old saying, the village raises the child. Yeah. So there's a lot of social learning just built in to, to that, that, those early years. And school was just for you know uh, a smaller number of years. But what's happening today is families are tiny. You might have one or two kids. And so school by default is the extended family. But if all you do is put them in rooms all day long, you're not really fulfilling um, what the extended family always did. And that is to socialize them. A child needs a number of other people to get involved with to actually fill out and, and learn how to live a viable life. If all you've got is, you know, one or two parents and naught or one siblings, and you're just supervised all day at school, that's not much of a social preparation for the rest of your life. Yeah. And so there's a lot of people who are pretty socially inept and pretty socially stunted. You know, I learnt recently a, a rather sad statistic of the growing rate of single-person apartments being built these days. And I think the human being is a social animal. Uh, that's not really uh, right for, you know, the, the full flowering of human life. And so that we talk about the whole child, you can see we believe that the, the social developing, the, the social confidence and, and social fluency interacting with other people and how to... You know, solve disputes and so on. You can only do that through experience. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I say, back in the day when we had large families in the local village, well, that, there was plenty of experience. Whereas these days, schools, I know schools weren't designed to replace the family, but we have to face the fact that today, that's all there is. You know, there's the nuclear family at home and there's the school, that's it. So, um, you know, if we want to raise the young humans, you know, uh, in, a, in a way that prepares them for life, um, the school has to actually take notice of the whole child and what effect they're having on it. Like I said earlier, you know, you typically see a little child going off to school who's all bright and sparkly and expressive and communicative. And if you catch them 13 years later when they finish school, I'm home, mum. You know, it's very hard to even get a whole sentence out of them. Yeah. You know, and they're not very expressive or communicative. And they don't find it very easy to interact with people. So, you know, um, I realised that schools were designed originally to teach subjects, you know, not to 
socialize humans, but by default, that's what we have to do these days. An enlightened school needs to do that. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that the school almost inadvertently gets great results in the NAPLAN, is it NAPLAN? NAPLAN, NAPLAN yes. testing around yeah. literacy and numeracy and, yes. and writing and those kind of things. Yes. What, what other things do you notice about the students that come through the school? You know, what things do they... Okay. Yeah, what, well, another thing we notice is when we first started the school, um, parents naturally wondered how they'd cope at secondary school. Yeah. And we'd say, in the very first few years, we'd say, oh dear, you know, we're not sure about that. Yeah, we're not even sure if we'll get through the curriculum in time. They might have to do an extra year of primary. Um, but it didn't turn out that way. Uh, I remember two boys in those early days had it in their grandmother's will that they were to go to Melbourne Grammar. We thought, oh, that's a bit scary after being here, because yeah. that's like going from one end of history to the other. <laughs> um, and they went off in their uniforms and everything, and, and after a few weeks, we got a, a message back from the, from the teachers there saying, have you got any more kids? We thought, we said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, your boys are uplifting the standard of our class. And I said, well, how's that? And they said, well, you know, we, we, we study a poem. And then I say to the boys, well, what did we think of this poem, boys? And they all sit there like stunned mullets, which is normal. But the boy from your school will simply, you know, start talking and saying, well, I thought this and that and the next thing. Very polite and very articulate. And I said, oh, yeah, well, that's what we do every day in our classes. You know, um, they all talk to the group. Everyone talks um, to the rest of the group uh, about whatever's going on. And um, so it's just a natural way of life for them that they can engage in intelligent conversation without inhibition. And so, you know, the boy from this school would just stand up in the class and say, oh, hands up, and say, you know, what they thought. And then the other boys would, would start joining in. And so the whole thing would get going. And so the teachers would say, you know, it's good for our school to have kids from your school. Yeah. We thought, wow, that's a nice compliment. And since then, we've learned that our children do very well in secondary. I mean, as much as anyone can, um, it may sound a bit heavy, but, you know, Secondary school is not that great a place to spend those six years at that age. Um, you know, life does get a bit heavy um, in secondary school for a lot of kids, you know. Um, it's, I think, uh, the most depressed part of life, you know, in, in terms of uh, not everyone, but the rate of depression, you know. Um, but it... Um, you know, the kids who, who are from here and they go to a big secondary school, it's quite a different experience. It's like joining the army or something because they don't know lots of people and they, and they don't know the teachers, you know, personally. Um, and so, but what we find is because they've spent all these years engaged in uh, intelligent conversation and conflict resolution and sorting out problems all the time, every day, whatever uh, problems they come up with at secondary school, they use the same kind of 
intelligent reasoning um, just by themselves, even though it's no longer a conversation, it seems to convert into good problem-solving skills, yeah. which was we, we, we didn't anticipate that, but it's a lovely thing to emerge. So since then, we gave up worrying about secondary school because uh, we've, we've known that um, uh, they, they do cope very well. In fact, I remember going back about oh, 30 years or so, my, one of my young daughters uh, finished here and so did seven children. They went from here to seven different secondary schools. Yeah. And um, we always followed them up and um, we, we got quite sort of, um, you know, intrigued because six out of the seven, after a few weeks, uh, we heard, had become the class captain. <laughs> we don't even have class captains here. We never even thought of the idea. But it turns out that just because that they were comfortable to open their mouths and speak in front of the class and speak intelligently in a useful, efficient sort of way, yeah. they automatically filled the role, yeah. you know, uh, which made me realise the old saying that leaders are born, not made is not exactly true. You know, if you raise people a certain way, they will be able to lead, you know. Um, yeah, so that was... Uh, yeah, so that made me realise how many ways conventional schooling of today does not prepare children for life. So many ways. And that, that's probably, you know, a, a top example, the one I've just been talking the ability to speak to people fluently and intelligently and not just go stupid or go painfully shy or just rebel or uselessly, you know. Um, so, I mean, th that is obviously a vital skill for anyone to have yeah. and should be right at the top of the list of any school curriculum, which it is not. Yeah. <laughs> so the kids do well in secondary school. Have you had any, I mean, you must keep in contact with, the, I guess, the older alumni of the school as well. You know, what have Certainly. you noticed about people as they get into adulthood and in their 20s and 30s and probably older than that now as well? Yes. What, what are you noticing about the adults well they certainly um, they certainly uh, virtually all go into university studies and I think partly uh, well partly their parents um, tend to be pretty educated themselves so they encourage that path I'd say but also from their experience in this school they regard academic subjects as pleasurable so that they're not sort of um, diverted away from them, you know. They, they find that an attractive prospect to go and study something. Yeah. Um, and they end up all over the world, actually. Um, in fact, a, a crazy thing happened just recently. We, uh, we heard from one of our past pupils was studying something in New York, uh, something about international affairs, and... and um, and so was another, one was male, one was female, uh, from somewhere else in America. And then they both ended up in the same town in Africa. <laughs> so, you know, they're very delighted to run into each other there. But um, they just end up doing all sorts of things. Uh, because another aspect of our school, when we talk about the whole child, is um, we don't want them to be afraid of 
um, just you know uh, the human space like um, when we go on camps uh, it's pretty primitive you know we don't have showers and kitchens and stuff we have you know a fire we make a fire and we have sort of huts with bunks and, and sleeping bags and they come home dirty but they come home an inch taller you know because they say well I can do this you know it's not scary we don't try and make it difficult we're not like those militaristic camps that some private schools have where they try and make it tough for them you know to toughen them up or something we're completely the opposite we make it as enjoyable as possible you know they get to do a lot of their own imagination you know they do stuff in the bush and dig holes and build things out of branches and so on and or sit around and talk or play games you know and and we eat nice stuff we make it as enjoyable as possible and we get them to do everything like you know the cooking and what have you um, and so after some years of doing that they're not afraid of going places um, I remember our t son Timothy who, who's now the new principal he he's he loved going to China he, he studied Chinese at school and so he went to China to further his Chinese and he went there about 15 times and on one of his visits a, as a you know adult um, he ran into a French woman a Parisian of his own age um, in Kunming in China and they decided to get married and They've now got four children, and she's the principal's wife. Um, but, um, yes, while uh, Tim decided, because he's, he's been brought up with this outward-bound approach to childhood where you just go to the bush and you just work out how to survive, and you enjoy the whole thing, so, you know, nothing's really very scary. You know, adventures, are just, or they're always looking for adventures. They go to the maddest places. Yeah like, you know, Mongolia and stuff like that. Anyway, um, the, the, um, the, the engagement celebration, they decided to have it in a country part of China called Tiger Leaping Gorge. And uh, so we had to go over there as the parents and, you know, um, uh, Tim's wife's French... Uh, family and friends had to come over and also Tim's Chinese friends came all to this uh, country area when we got near the place you had to go on foot climbing up the hill you see and when we got there it was a an old barracks from like the 1300s so very primitive like the beds were like just tables you know and um, and the bathroom was just a hose hanging from a tree branch you see but there was also one modern unit they'd built there because this this was all done by this, you know, uh, tribe of people uh, who are not exactly Han Chinese, something else, uh, um, and that's what what they had. Tim had been there before, you see, and we, as the you know esteemed elderly parents of the groom, were given the unit, you see, the modern unit. But then. A couple of Tim's uh, Chinese friends arrived, husband and wife, uh, business people, and they they found the, the old barracks just too primitive. To, we said, look, take the unit, you can have it, we'll go in the barracks, we're used to it. 
So they took the unit, we took the barracks, and we discovered that the friends of Timothy who came to the engagement uh, event, um, who'd come up through our school, they were perfectly happy sleeping on these boxes and, and the bathroom was a hose. There was nothing to them. It didn't slow them down. It didn't stop them for one minute enjoying the whole few days that we spent there. But, you know, the Frenchies and, and, and the, even the, the Chinese people, they weren't comfortable, weren't very comfortable. And I thought, wow, it's wonderful to see, you know, with my own eyes, the, the fruits, the effects of taking them out into the bush like that as a regular part of their childhood. Yeah. It's like um, you know, the school or, you know, the way the kids are taught, it, it develops in them this um, self-resilience and this ability to understand and follow their curiosity yes. as well. And I think yeah. when we spoke on the phone earlier, you were talking about how a lot of uh, a lot of what we're told comes from the top and we're told what to do and how to do it, but you seem to have seem to be able to light a flame inside people that um, encourages them and empowers them to follow the things that they're interested in and curious about and uh, yeah yeah so yeah the thing that that stays alive the thing that we want to stay alive is their own enthusiasm for everything and so for example um, sometimes we get a phone call from a local school it could be a state school or a Catholic school and um, they, they've ended up with a free period and they want to play some sport in the park across the road. And we always say, yeah, sure. And so we just drop whatever we're doing, go across there. Because being a small school, we can't supply, you know, say 12 big boys from year six, you know, to be in, in, in the team. So we have kids of all sizes in our team and they've got all big kids in their team. But um, our kids approach sport which su with such gusto they're very keen to find out what the rules are and they play it for all it's worth and it's amazing how often we win the games you know just out of sheer enthusiasm and we don't push them we don't say no you've got to win this yeah we, we just say no just enjoy the game you know but that um that display of spirit is very heartening to see because that's what we always wanted that they'd still have spirit yeah that we wouldn't that the school experience wouldn't dispirit them, which, alas, it often seems to do to kids. Yeah. So you can see we really uh, believe that we've got something to share with the world about how to school young children for the better. Yeah. And um, we realise that the mainstream school industry is very entrenched in its ways and it's very hard to impinge on them at all. You know, I mean... Uh, the authorities, the education authorities, don't come looking for what we do. They don't even ask the question, how come you end up in the top 1% all the time? They don't want to know the answer because they know it's going to totally disrupt their established yeah. bureaucracy that they've got. And uh, so we've written a book uh, just called Fitzroy Community School um, explaining what we do and, and what effects it has and how you know society at large could actually um, school young children in a better way you know for those children so that they will be you know, more fulfilled people when they grow up but not only that it would also give Australia higher educational standards yeah. 
it's pretty embarrassing where we stand at the moment. For such a high standard of living country, we're 19th. It doesn't, that doesn't fit, you know. Mm. I mean, the way we're going, we will be the sort of poorly educated cousin of the Asia-Pacific region. We're already heading that way right now. And that's quite un unnecessary. You know, children are capable of far more than what they're achieving at the moment because it's not, they're not enthused. Yeah. Um, so we definitely feel we have something to share with the wider world of primary education and there's a much better way of doing it. And it doesn't even cost any more. See, we only, this school operates on an average cost per student uh, across the whole of Australia. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah, the average cost of a state school seat in Australia is $16,800 per annum. Yeah. We don't spend that much per child. Most of our income, though, has to come from the parents. Because in Australia, if you choose a state school and you're a multimillionaire, you get 100% funding. If you choose a non-state school, uh, it doesn't matter how poor you are, you have to pay, or if you come here, you have to pay 80% of it out of your own pocket. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of choice, but only if you can afford it. And even that is limited because they don't allow all sorts of independent educators to start their own schools. Yeah. So there's a limited choice and it's only for those who've got the spare cash. That's the way it is in Australia today. Yeah. And we'd like to see that change. We'd like to see um, independent educators be allowed to start their own, especially small primary schools, because that's, we believe, is the most potent part of the educational journey to make a real difference. You know, some people think, well, look, we can only afford to pay two years of school fees, so we'll do that when they're in year 11 and 12. It's way too late then. If you want to have a real effect on how the child you know, grows and, and how, um, how well they engage with education, spend it on the first two years, not the last two. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. So I take it that you're, you're not involved in the school day to day at the moment. Do you want to talk a little bit about your role now with the school yes. as the founder and okay. um, also maybe yeah, extrapolate a little bit more on, perhaps it's related, but extrapolate a little bit more on what you were saying about how you've got something to share and you know, you'd like to see more of these ideas taken up by other primary schools around Victoria and around Australia. Like how, how can that happen? I know that's two questions in one and maybe they're related, but yeah. Well. Um, I've certainly written many letters to the editor, half of which do get published, and they do suggest better ways of schooling, but they're so drowned out by all the routine propaganda about schooling. You know, the school industry puts out a lot of propaganda to say, oh yeah, we've got, we've got, we're handling this, we've got this new method, we've got this new technique, and it's all, you know, under control. Uh, and so my little voice it gets drowned out. Um, so we've written a book. My wife and I have written a book called Fitzroy Community School, which we wish people would buy and read yeah. because although I've given it a rather dull title, just Fitzroy Community School, what's in it is very exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and people can find that on online. <coughs> but, um, 
Yeah, so apart from that, um, I'm just sort of... I mean, it, eventually people must discover that there is a better way and they'll want to know about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're very happy to... Um, Faye and I both are very happy to share our discoveries. It's a bit like you go back to the days of sailing ships. You know, we feel what we've done is we've sailed out into the unknown waters of just creating your own school, completely going outside the established system. And we've certainly learnt all sorts of wonderful things about how you can uh, educate young children more successfully. And we've also learnt <coughs> um, some less savoury things about how the whole education industry works, you know, to prevent evolution from occurring. So this is valuable information for our whole civilization, for our whole society. Yeah. <coughs> so, um, yeah, so we feel now we, we've sort of come back from that great ocean journey into those unknown worlds and uh, we've got something to tell. And so we've put it in the book and we're very happy to talk about it as well. And so, you know... Uh, the book just came out um, this year. All oh, right. Yeah. So and, and and you know you're one of the few examples of people who actually want to hear what we have to say, <laughs> uh, because you know, a lot of people sort of know I think that that schooling is not what it should be. Yeah. But they really don't want to stir the hornet's nest because, you know, let's face it, our society depends on school to mind children while we carry on with our adult business and just to hang on to them until they're old enough to be employable. Mm. But we are not thinking of schooling like that. We're thinking of it from the point of view of giving the young human the best possible start in life. Yeah. I've got a feeling that that's going to be much more valuable when uh, those kids, you know, 10, 15 years down the track as well, yes. get to that point. I've got a, f a few questions just as we start to wrap up. Yes. Uh, one's about what... You know, parents like myself who are interested in this kind of thing, and perhaps there's uh, people that you know might even in the back of their mind thinking, "Man, I'd like to be part of a school like that, or even start a school like that." What? I mean, reading the book's probably a good way to start. Yes. Yeah. Are there other Very things good. that you would encourage those type of parents to do? Um, Yes, uh, I mean, if someone really wants to start a school, you have to be very determined because they will try and frighten you out of it. Hello. Hi. How are you? That's the principal's little preschool boy wandering in. Ah, oh, cool. Okay. Um, yeah, so... It's clean up time. Oh, yes. Okay, thanks, Xavier. Now, just go out there for a minute because we have to do a little bit more talking into this machine. Okay? See you later. Hi. Yeah. No kids in here? No. Good luck. That's uh, parents trying to find their kids at the end of the school day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what were we talking about just now? Um, just parents who would think about, you know, either starting a school oh, like this yes. or encouraging this kind of yeah. thing to start. Yeah. No, well, certainly if you, um, if you approach the education department and say you'd like to start a school, well, they'll give you a mountain of red tape to wade through and many people just think, oh no, that's too hard. Um, but the, if you ever wanted to do that, you'd go and approach someone 
who's recently started a school and they can help you through all that red tape. Yeah. Uh, but you'd have to be a determined person. There are some who yeah. still do it. Yeah. But you'd have to certainly be determined. You, you certainly cannot be a person that is you know, overwhelmed by bureaucracy and yeah. fancy government letterheads. Yeah. You have to remember that your what you're doing for children is more important than you know pleasing the bureaucracy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a false god. You've got to decide which is the important thing that you're working for here. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. The the last two questions, the first one is about potentially uh, something that you'd like to disrupt one day in the future or you know uh, next or perhaps you just daydream about it but you've you've been a big part of changing the way people experience and think about education specifically particularly in this community here is there something outside of education that you think you'd like to be part of changing the way that's done well more broadly um, I think you know, when you look at Australian society today, you say, well, it's a land of peace and a land of plenty. So we should be the happiest people in the world. But in fact, what do we find? We find that we've got extraordinary levels of unhappiness, depression, suicide. It's way bigger than the road toll. And, um, you know, Australia is, is the biggest user of non-medical drugs too. So. You know, there's a lot um, not actually working out properly in, in what should be uh, the happiest land in the world. Yeah. And I, re I, I believe that the reason people are um, struggling, you know, to, to feel um, fulfilled by life is because we have so much regulation in this country the individual is not the captain of their own life. Yeah. Like, when I was a boy, everybody knew someone who built their own home. And some of the people you'd visit, it w the house was built by them. And they were so proud. You know, the, the, the dad would say, oh yes, I did this and I did that. And, and it was inspiring. And, um, but since then, so much regulation has been heaped upon, nobody builds their own house anymore. Yeah. You just get commercial enterprises that have worked it all out and they just build them by the same approach, you know, one after the other. So that's just one example of a, of a strong instinct, you know, to build your own nest and to be proud of what you built for you and your family. That's been taken away. Yeah. That's just one of many things that's been taken away from us. Um, the way the authorities try to service us is they say, don't you worry, we'll take care of this. We will provide services, you know, to uh, keep you on the straight and narrow. If you get depressed, come and see one of our people. If you get sick, come and see one of our people. If you get unemployed, we'll come and see this department here. Um, but you try and carve out your own life. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's against regulations. You say, but it's not hurting anybody. Ah, oh, regulations are regulations. That's their explanation. That's what you get. I mean, we've copped a lot of that in creating the school. They, they tried to make us like a normal school. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's even been said to us when we've been inspected by, by the state education department, um, you know, they've said, you know, well, uh, how, how do you work with the children? We explained it briefly and they said, well, well, that's ideal, but does it conform with regulations? 
<laughs> they literally said exactly that with yeah. a straight face. So what I'm saying is Australia, I think more than a lot of other countries, has become, you know, spellbound by overregulation, which is actually depriving individuals from really doing their own thing, which is what will give them you know, a, a sense of meaning and, and, and achievement and fulfillment in their lives. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good one. The last one is about yourself and about, um, I guess, a small change or something subtle that you've done in your own life. This podcast is called Subtle Disruptors, so it's about the subtle disruptions that people are making. But I just I want to ask you about, yeah, something small that you've changed or you did some point in your life that sustained you on this journey or enabled you to live in this kind of way? Well, I suppose I could say this. I certainly, um, when I first went to school myself as a little child, I really believed in it because my mother, who only went to primary school, she used to read all the time, you see, and, and she used to say to me, you'll love it when you go to school. It will open doors. You'll learn all about the world and history and the future, science, everything. And I, I felt really positive about school. And in those days, as well as giving you, you know, marks for your, for your academic work, they also gave you a mark for um, your behavior. What do they call it? Conduct, yes. And I often used to get first in conduct because I was so enamored of the idea of schooling and I'd listen to the teachers carefully and do my work, you know, studiously. And, um, you know, I went through primary school, then entered secondary. And then I, I started sort of wearing out, you know. I'd put all my goodwill into it. Yeah. And I sort of felt, you know, what's happening to me? I, I, I had so little experience of mixing with other people, you know, um, going out and, and seeing anything much in the world. You know, we, we didn't have... Well, these days we, we still don't have many, uh, schools still don't have many outings. So there's too much red tape attached. But, um, you know, and, and like a lot of boys, you know, in late secondary school, I felt pretty, you know, lost. And when you've finished school, they just throw you out in the world and you don't know anything about it. You feel completely, you know, inept socially and, and you don't know how to do anything much, really. And so... It's not much of a, it's not much of a, a, a good start to adult life. Yeah. You know, to, to keep us out of circulation for 13 years and then just drop us in it <laughs> yeah. with total ignorance. Totally. Um, it's really a pretty hopeless way that we prepare our young for, for life. And I felt that myself. And, um, and so I thought, no, there's something wrong with all this. This is not how it should be. And... Um, when I, uh, I went to university and, and found that I was uh, interested in philosophy and specialised in logic, and I used to write articles for the university paper every month, uh, and I did a whole series called Our Education System is Sick. And I'd write all the ways in which it wasn't really achieving its goals, and, um, you know, how people were left with much less than they could have had. And um, I remember getting into trouble with the education faculty at the university really? for constantly criticising the education system. And, um, but I didn't realise then that, that I was ever going to start a school. 
and uh, I have to say that I've been totally blessed by the gods by meeting Faye, um, who was dead keen on, on starting the school together. And we both loved every minute of it, and, and we wouldn't exchange it for any other life. Yeah. Philip, it's been so good to talk with you. Thanks for yeah, sharing about the school. Sure. It really is an inspiring place that you've, you've brought into being here. So yeah, thank you and well done. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.